Hello and uh, welcome to Disrupt TV. My name is Bala Afshar, Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, and our distinguished guests your questions using hashtag Disrupt TV, and we will do our best to answer them live. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host. He's the CEO and founder of Constellation Research. He's the best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business, regular contributor to Harvard Business Review and ZDNet. And in my humble opinion, one of the top futurists to follow on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thanks a lot. Happy Friday. And I'm here with my co-host, Vala Afshar. He is one of the top people to follow on Twitter, whether you're CIO, CMO, or CEO for best business advice, life-inspiring tweets, and more importantly, he's on Business Press, <laughs> Business TV, and a keynote speaker himself and writer. But it's not about us. It's about you. It's about what's happening around the world today. And we've got some awesome guests. Vala, who do we have to start with today? Life-inspiring tweets. Wow. <laughs> it's our <laughs> privilege and honor <laughs> to kick off the show with Allison Allen, who's Executive Vice President and Chief People Officer at Lincoln Center for the Performing Arts. Allison's focusing on three strategic priorities. One, connecting Lincoln Center's constituents around high-performing teams uh, and high-performing talent across the Lincoln Center campus championing inclusion and increasing the diversity or representation at all levels of the organization, as well as adv advice on diversification of audiences, communities, performers, and abroad. Uh, and the last thing is contributing to strengthening the overall performance of the Lincoln Center for Performing Arts organization by helping to foster an inclusive and supportive work environment for approximately 500 full-time and 1,200 part-time employees. Prior to this appointment, Allison consulted, developed strategic uh, strategies in executive diversity, inclusion, and talent management at Gerson Lehman Group. Prior to GLG, Allison was vice president of diversity, inclusion, and talent management at Oath, uh, pre previously known as Verizon Media. In this role, she led global efforts across Oath's 50 plus media and tech 50 plus media and technology brands to build strong talent, organizational philosophies, and culture. You can follow Allison on Twitter at A-L-L-I-S-O-N-E-R-H. Welcome, Allison, to Disrupt TV. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. And that sounds pretty impressive. I'm actually happy about myself right now. <laughs> I love the way you read that. Can you sort of follow me around New York and just talk about me it'll be amazing vala has the best introductions <laughs> in the business i mean i, I want I, I i get shivers all the time when, I get people get, when he introduces folks it's amazing so hey you know, i want to catch up with you because you've got some of the you've, you've had an awesome corporate career right you've hit yeah. all the major brands banking media yeah. right uh thinking about what's happening telecom uh in, in the broad sense and and now you're doing nonprofit. Right. And, yeah. and there's got to be a huge difference between, you know, how a nonprofit works, a for profit works, um, at, you know, whether it's talent, whether it's hiring, recruiting, you know, the whole entire hire to retire uh, life cycle. So tell us a little bit about that, that transition. Uh, and of course, yeah. you know, your experiences that have been going on. No, 100 percent. I think I assumed that going into Lincoln Center for the Performing Arts was going to be easy. I was thinking, you know, my kids are in college. I'll go into the not for profit world. This will be a breeze. And actually, it turns out, outside of the sort of, you know, mechanics of Lincoln Center for the Performing Arts, it faces exactly the same issues. Re, you know, attracting talent, retaining talent, diversity, um, leadership development, how do you build high-performing teams. And I think with the appointment of Henry Thames, who's the new CEO, and my post, 
Um, it's a great time to drive sort of organizational transformation through the entire campus. So it's a super exciting time. It is absolutely not quiet. We have, uh, in, in my not nine of being here, we have faced COVID. We have faced um, probably one of the biggest uh, um, uh, moments in time around civil rights. Um, and we're trying to figure out how to get our employees to be not just folks that are centralized to a campus, but how to work remotely. So it's it's definitely not the quiet. It's been super exciting. And, and so if, it's, if you're talking nine months, that means you were five months and change <laughs> before this seismic event that's never happened in our lifetime happens. Yeah. yeah. So so what was that like? And now you you know you're you're tra- like all of us trying to transition to digital and yeah. And, 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 and so can you tell us a little bit about, I, about that you experience? Know, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of the first 90 days. And so, you know, you do what most <laughs> leaders do, right? You, no, I am. And you, and you learn and you have conversations and you talk to people and understand the, the difference between, you know, how P&L statements work and actually how building revenue and, con, you know, contributions work and learning the difference between a private equity board and actually a not-for-profit board, which is like night and day. Um, and I think for that, it was, it was, a, it was, it was, a, again, cra- there was sort of contrast in the, the, the for-profit and the not-for-profit world. But I think there's so many similarities when you can get the words to make sense. So that was what it was about. And I think also we were going through um, an opportunity to look at how we sort of run more like a sort of a, a profitable business. So we've been looking um, at how do we sort of bring in systems and, um, you know, I, I joke a lot about the um, the number of printers um, <laughs> at this organization, <laughs> and I, one of my first projects that I took on, and the is in the people team role, is how do we actually eliminate printers? Like, uh, I think we could save some money if we just you know stop <laughs> buying printers. So no, it's been it's been super exciting, and I think again, all of these different challenges have have uh, stretched the org in different ways. I think um, I've worked for top tech firms, and and the 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 changes that we're facing in this not-for-profit i think that we've seen some some agility that i don't think we expected to see i think we were expecting to have to pull people to remote working and within two weeks we were able to do that relatively quickly so it was amazing yeah i think there's more there than than people realize no and hey one of the top issues you know that people you know one of the top issues of our time one of the things that you've been championing for quite some time is really diversity equity and inclusion um and and you've done it in almost every organization you've been at what are some of the ways that you guys are doing now at lincoln center and and what is the role of the people team in making that happen so because you've got a quite a wide range of you know i mean talk about the workforce i mean it's a wide range of folks from volunteers (laughs) you know gig workers all the way to people that are on staff so yeah, I mean, I think I, the first thing we did was when I joined, we we took what was basically a personnel department that focused on payroll and benefits and um, employee changes, and we we decided to actually merge diversity, equity, inclusion, and people together, so that every single thing we do um, in the organization actually is done through the lens of diversity. What we're also doing is um, responding to the moment because I don't know how much you, how much you know about Lincoln Center for the Performing Arts, but it's a traditional sort of um, orchestra, um, you know, amazing plays, ballet. Um, but there's really not a lot of opportunity for seeing, you know, for example, uh, Kanye 
or, you know, mm. or, um, you know, really, really diverse art artists. And I use Kanye because we actually did have him come there right before um, we went out on COVID. And, and everyone thought this was like such an amazing thing. Like, why is, why is Kanye at Lincoln Center? And it's like, well, why shouldn't he be? He's an artist. So I think we're using this moment with diversity in the work to actually expand the definition of what an artist really is and looking for more opportunities to attract that artistry to the stages. So we're taking it from sort of a people perspective. And and Ray, you mentioned all of the, the folks that we have working with there, working there. We have like we have full-time people like myself and we have people who who pass out you know um program program brochures right it's a it's a vast array of people um but i think um we have the internal perspective from a people perspective and we're also trying to influence who are on the stages you know mm -hmm. so that we can attract very different folks to lincoln center i myself have lived in new york for over 20 years and before i started working there i thought the only thing they did was the nutcracker <laughs> right. So we realized, and, and it's sad. It's sad, right? And, and I, every time at Christmas, we were there for the Nutcracker, and then we never go back again. And it's like you realize that actually there's so much amazing stuff there, but it still needs to, it's got a lot of work in terms of diversity. So, no, it's, it's so you have a comprehensive, holistic view, right? Not only the programming, but also the yep. people, but also the folks that bring it all together. And you're looking at yep. that wide view. So, yes, yeah. And I think, I think it's also responding to the history. Um, you know, this. The Lincoln Center was born, well, actually, it was created at 16 acres of prime real estate in the middle of Manhattan. It was um, basically uh, built on built on land that was um, from indigenous populations. Um, before that, there was tenements. Actually, West Side Story, I don't know if you know, but it was actually created, you know, and 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 actually the, the, the building of Lincoln Center for the Performing Arts was put on pause so they could actually shoot that movie because the tenements were there and it was just a good opportunity. But there's so many, so much history there that we haven't been talking about, you know, and how do you sort of so long ago, there was this really great history that never gets played out except in that movie. So we're looking at ways to tell the Lincoln Center story to, to pay respect to the people who were there. And again, looking at ways to invite more communities into the organization because it's, 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 um, it's 16 acres. It's, it's one of the largest, you know, pieces of property that's not a park. And we, we need more communities to feel like it's their home, you know, and that, it, and they're not, they're not on the outside of it, but they're actually a part of it. That's terrific. That's terrific. Yeah. Well, Especially in this time. Yeah. For the, uh, you know, CHROs or chief people officers that are watching, can you give us advice in terms of how, how do you measure diversity and equity and inclusion? From your, from your experience, what should be the guiding principles to know that you're making forward progress? It's such a business question. I remember starting my career off with learning and development and people said, how can you measure learning and development? And over time, it became the cost of doing business. And I kind of feel like DEI is that as well. But, but to answer your question, you really, you really um, measure it based on engagement. You know, how engaged are people? How, how productive are they? How connected are they to the mission and the objectives of the organization? Do they feel like they belong? They belong to the organization, you know? And that, what I mean by that is when I come there, do I bring my whole self? Am I representing who I am? Am I showing up in a way that's truly me? And, and the environment for which I sit in um, makes me feel like who I am is, is, is all that matters. So you look at engagement scores, um, you look at uh, performance management, um, and I don't mean in a way of sort of 
you know, penalizing for people what they didn't do, but actually how do you do performance management so you're helping people to go forward? And and you look at sort of um, overall productivity. I give someone a task, um, they perform a task, I give them two tasks now and they're much better at it and they feel like they have all the resources that they need. That's how you actually measure diversity, equity, inclusion. I think for the longest time in this space, we looked at numbers, in essence, butts and seats. And I think we have to, worry about the diversity, which is, is the rules and the regulations around this stuff and the, and the numbers. Um, and we've got to start focusing on the inclusion piece, right? Um, I think some of the most inclusive teams don't always have to have, you know, seats filled by diverse people. They just have to feel that I can be truly myself no matter where I am. So we want to have the right mix of skills, um, the right skill, the right mix of talent, and we want to have the right mix of perspectives, and we want the bodies that that sort of contain all those things to to look different and like the like the audiences and the communities that we're trying to attract. Terrific. That makes sense. It does. Yeah, yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense, especially given the fact that numbers only tell one side of the story. It's also the yeah. culture. It's also the values inside an organization, and to build well, that. Um, yeah, I mean, you can end up with organ rejection, right? I mean, you go out and you find and you recruit and you spend so much money, you know, recruiting, going to fairs, doing conferences, and then you get all these great people to come here and it's like the body isn't ready to sort of accept the, the organ and and it's not great. So that's, the, that's why I think more and more, you know, we need to champion the inclusion piece. Like how do we make the place safe and how do we make this a destination and how do we sort of, you know, look at retaining those we want to keep across the board, not just based on on diversity. So I, I think that's the aim that we're going to take. At least we'll try it. No, and I, we'll see what happens. No, and, and that's the question <laughs> that a lot of people ask. No, this is so important, right? I mean, people are building and, you know, trying to build brands that are diverse and they're inclusive. Um, and then some points, you know, we, we bring in underrepresented groups uh, and then we have to avoid that issue around tokenizing people like how do you avoid 100%. that how do you make sure it doesn't feel that way i mean it's one of the 100%. tough challenges tough questions to ask right you know i mean and but 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 you have to do that right in order to make it truly um diverse you know inclusive and equitable so so how do you I do that it, right i, I think mean you stop feeling i yeah i think you stop feeling like a token if i'm clear what i'm there for hmm. do you know well what i mean um, well you know well and if i know that i'm there to bring a perspective that happens to be of a person of color or a person who is um, very skilled at leadership. Like if I am very crystal clear as to the purpose of the job, right? Hmm. Um, then I, I actually know what value I'm bringing and I buy into it and I live in that, right? I, I deliver against that. Maybe I don't wanna be boxed that way. And so hmm. the way that you can complement it is by giving me other opportunities. But I think if we can be really crystal clear, you know, I. I live, I worked at McKinsey for eight, eight years. I lived through the times of the best practice reports around diversity, right? Well, you know, all, you know, teams and, you know, build great teams and you'll build great products, you know, and, and companies went off just like, you know, robots and they did that, right? But no one thought about, okay, how do we get clear about this, the, the point of this for us as an organization? Like, why, why are we building these diverse teams and to what end? So the connecting of the dots, I think, um, for the individual, for the teams, for the work, I think is super critical. And and if I know what what my role is, I'm I'm going to be all in, especially if I want to be there. Absolutely makes total sense. Uh, Ray, Ray yeah. mentioned Ray mentioned underrepresented communities. How do companies creatively attract 
talented people from underrepresented communities? What are some considered practices that companies should should put into play? I think I think one thing that organizations can continue to think about is is their own brand, right? Um, you know, there I I've lived through the time where you know everybody wanted to work. I hope this is okay to say, but everybody wanted to work at Facebook and everybody wanted to work at mm -hmm. Google and everyone wanted to work at a big big brand, McKinsey, for that matter. Sure. Um, and so I think when you have a brand where everybody wants to work and and you figure out you know what what makes those places destinations, you you have to continue to cultivate that, right? And what you have to do is also couple that with your political stance on things. I think often organizations now are thinking that the money, I, I often say money gets old. <laughs> if I'm working <laughs> in a company where it's not great, you know, money gets old. So companies, organizations have to think about not just how they pay and retain people, but their stance on social issues, their stance politically, um, uh, how do they wrap all of that together and have it sort of speak to the culture that they're trying to drive. Um, Lots of people have choices, very talented people, especially very, very talented, diverse people have choice. And so the way to stand out is to make sure that as an organization, you're looking at all those things, because when you have choice, you can you can go where you want to go. I also think yeah. that there's something beautiful about big organizations taking responsibilities for education and uh, adopting schools, um, you know, where where we've gone in and we've built these big, gigantic um uh, organizational uh, buildings and taken over huge landscapes, but not done anything to invest in the community. I think that's a big mistake. And I think that's a challenge is some of the stuff that we're talking about at Lincoln Center for the Performing Arts. It's like, how do we start to take care of our community? You know, I, I remember joining and, and hearing uh, multiple times that the community thinks that Lincoln Center has its back to it. And if you're walking up mm -hmm. Amsterdam and you look at it, you can see why they're saying that, right? Mm -hmm. And they're literally across the street. Why do, why do we have our back to that, to that community? So we are actively figuring out ways to, again, bring the community onto the campus. We're also looking at ways that we can change the back so that it feels more open and more expressive to, to um, Amsterdam housing, which sits right behind Lincoln Center. So I think, I think organizations have responsibilities to, to support the communities, especially where they said, if that makes sense. Great. No. It does. Yeah, we've it got does. some great questions here. I think uh, I'll pop one in here. Uh, how do you refine the hiring process to demonstrate inclusion? We'll do that and then, uh, we'll, and then we'll close out, so. Yeah, um, how, do you, how do you define, I, you know, if you're not doing diversely, it's such like table stakes. Right. <laughs> I think yeah. table yep, stakes yep, yep, are definitely. just, you know, diverse slates are just like, you know, anyone who says, well, we do diverse slates. It's like, OK, I think you have to sort of couple that with the candidate experience. So mm -hmm. every single person, whether it's a phone screen or in person or or there for a day needs to feel included in that experience. And, and you understand who they are. And I think you also have to couple that with managers that are interviewing and making sure that they know what questions to ask. It's not always about taking me through your resume, but talking about experiences and sharing those. And I think yeah. leaders that are building high performing teams need to understand how to embrace people. So all of those things have to be connected. You can't just do one piece of them. You can't because again, it goes back to the notion of getting the best talent and bringing them in the organization only to have it not work out. 
That's a great point. That's amazing. Allison, you, I can't believe 20 minutes. I mean, that was, you oh dropped so many <laughs> nuggets of wisdom in 20 minutes. You're awesome. Oh, Thank you so We are here That's with really. Allison Allen, Executive Vice President, Chief People Officer, Lincoln Center for the Performing Thank Arts. You. you can follow her on Twitter for other insights at Allison E-R-H on Twitter. So, hey, thanks a lot for being on the show. Thanks. Happy Friday. Thank you so much, Allison. Thank you. Wow, what a remarkable person. Uh, you know, I hope our audience gets to watch that segment again because uh, they were just remarkable insights there. And speaking of remarkable insights, we're now delighted and honored to have Alan Marks, a Chief Marketing and Communications Officer at uh, ServiceNow. Alan's also a member of the company's executive leadership team. Prior to joining ServiceNow, Alan led global communication, social responsibility, and brand strategy from 2008 to 2015 for eBay, where he served as Senior Vice President and Chief Communication Officer. Alan was a 2016 Fellow at Stanford's Distinguished Careers Institute. Alan's previous professional experience included Senior Communication Executive Leadership roles for these small companies like Nike, Gap, <laughs> and Avon Products. <laughs> Alan serves uh, on the boards of the Children's Discovery Museum of San Jose and UNC Hosman School of Media and Journalism Foundation as well, you can follow Alan on Twitter at A-L-M-R-K-S. Welcome, Alan, to Disrupt TV. Great to be here. Thank you. Hey, we're really excited to have you great on the show. Great to have you. What a great uh, first segment. I'm looking forward to having you. Terrific. Yeah, there's Thank so you. much going on. You guys have been doing a lot of work uh, in some of the areas. And, and really, you know, you've got the pulse of what the business community is thinking about. And, and what I want to know, and I know everyone out there also wants to know, what is on the mind of every C-suite leader? Every C-suite leader, what are they thinking about? What are they worried about? Um, and, and let's start there. Well, Ray, you know, it has been an extraordinary time. If you just go back to end of March, you know, in a, overnight, as the COVID pandemic was spreading, organizations like ServiceNow and our customer base, everybody had to transition to work from home. And for us as a company, you know, this is what we do, workflow and, and, and uh, digital transformation. So for us, that was fairly straightforward. And, and we use our own technology, obviously, and our own platforms. And so we were able to do that fairly seamlessly. And then we've been helping our customers understand how to do that as well. And so it's been an extraordinary time of innovation and learning. And you see this in the media, so many customer stories and comments of, you know, if you had asked me three months ago, could I have 100,000 people working remotely all over the world? I wouldn't have believed it. And so it's first and foremost, I think the crisis of the COVID pandemic has forced innovation in the C-suite and opened up conversations about new ways of working and work work anywhere, not just work remotely, but work anywhere. And I think that's gonna change the future of how companies work. And so now as we've gone through that crisis period, it's all about the safe return to work now. How do I get my company restarted? So we're, we're operating, but we may be operating in what still feels like crisis management mode. As we think about reopening, as, as communities reopen, states reopen, countries reopen, how do I get my people safely back to work and make them feel confident that when they go back to the office, they can do that in a safe and healthy way? And then business resiliency. Resiliency. How do how do I keep how do I keep the business operating? How do I how, all the things, global supply chains, all of the things that come with managing operations? And Ray, you, you guys know Valerie, you guys know every business is a little different, right? Certainly every industry is different, every geography is different. But in every company, if I'm a multinational company, I may have retail, 
I may have manufacturing, I've got distribution, customer service, I've got knowledge workers in traditional corporate, you know, skyscrapers. Every cohort in my company has a different set of needs and every segment of my business operation has a different set of needs. So when we look at that, we say, well, that's all about workflow, right? All of those are issues of how do you manage workflow? And in particular, how do you manage the complexities of cross-functional workflow? So Ray, you're, you know the platform, the now platform, you know, what we think of as the platform of platforms. And so part of what this is showing our customers in this time period is the power of the platform to drive those cross-functional workflows, to help put different parts together in a way that helps the C-suite manage a safe return to work for their employees, but also helps the employees do that in an effective, productive way. So that's what our focus has been. You know, we started in late March, we introduced a set of COVID response apps, and we helped organizations around the world uh, make that transition. We helped the state of Washington manage emergency response. We helped the city of LA. So we had a lot of customer examples of helping them do the emergency response aspects of COVID. And now we've moved to safe workplace apps. So we introduced a suite of safe workplace apps about four weeks ago. We now have around 400 customers who have installed 1,600 uh, instances of our applications. And, and so they're using our applications and our platform to gear up for a safe return to work. And this is employee readiness. This is workplace safety. Yesterday, we introduced an update, uh, a contact tracing app. And so this is what you see now happening around the world of how do I get my people back safely? How do I manage my operations? How do I manage the diversity of my operations? And we're demonstrating that that's all about the workflow. And that is the power of the now platform across your enterprise. Sure, sure. Uh, you're consistent in terms of we've had other uh, business leaders of large organizations, global organizations tell Ray and I that they feel that there's been digital and cultural transformation uh, accelerated by three to five years in the last three to four months. Yes. Uh, and so may, it may not be that the playbook has changed, it's just there's now a sense of urgency to digitize and transform. And uh, you're, you're right. We, last several months, uh, and for some, it still continues to be a stabilization phase, managing the crisis, depending on what sector you are and whether safety and accessibility prevents you from, you know, fully getting back to the reopening stage. But we are seeing that, you know, we're entering that reopening. And then hopefully, as you said, resiliency and growth stage, which will hopefully come soon after the reopening. What are some of the surprises? Uh, what are some of the delightful surprises that you've experienced helping your customers go through the stabilization and now perhaps to reopening that you can share with us to help inspire the other entrepreneurs and business leaders to know that you know there is light at the end of the tunnel and you can safely return back to work and delight your stakeholders yes a great great question and um there's no question there's been an acceleration, as you said. And we've seen from the beginning that our customers who already were embracing digital transformation and who were farther along that journey have been more agile. Right. And at the other end of the spectrum, companies are struggling more. And so you do see that, uh, that, that kind of validation of digital transformation. And I think everybody's gotten, gotten the message now that that's, that's a business imperative going forward. And again, as we help customers now with uh, safe workplace apps and return to work in a safe and healthy manner, I, I think you're seeing a cross-functional 
um, conversation happening in the C-suite now that didn't always happen before. You know, typically when you engage a C-suite, you may be doing that in a very vertical way. What is your area of responsibility, your domain expertise? But in this context, we're seeing cross-functional task forces come together at the C-suite level because everybody's got to come together and understand all the needs of the business. You know, one example, yesterday I was talking to one of our salespeople yesterday and he had been talking to a customer and he was joking that when they all came on the Zoom, you know, they were looking at each other going, where do you work in my company? These were people in the same company, right? Meeting each other for the first time. Wow. And so, you know, necessity is the mother of invention, right? And right. so you're seeing that you're seeing that collaboration happening in an accelerated way because to meet the needs of the business and to meet the needs of your employees, people have to come together in a way they didn't need to before. And they're doing that in right now, they're still doing that primarily in a digital work from home environment. So we're seeing that kind of collaboration. And again, that enterprise thinking versus domain thinking, these teams are thinking about the entire enterprise and thinking about all their use needs you know, and, and use cases. And, uh, and then the time to value, the speed, the agility. Uh, and again, part of what we're seeing, you know, the customers now who are deploying our safe workplace apps, uh, Uber just stood up our apps, Coca-Cola, European partners stood up our apps, the state of North Carolina just stood up our apps. And so they're seeing incredible time to value. And so I think they're also understanding the importance of speed and agility and the ability to take low code, no code app processes, our app engine on our now platform, and quickly stand up an app that can perform at scale and meet the needs of their business real time, I think that's going to shape a new wave of thinking uh, in, in customers around the world. And, and as you said in the beginning, I think in general, this is going to be an extraordinary period of innovation. You know, what started out as crisis, I think, is going to evolve in a period of innovation and transformation that we haven't seen before. And I think that's going to be both an acceleration of trends that have been underway for two decades in some cases, but it's also going to be new ways of working and new ways of thinking and new ways of leading organizations. And technology and particularly platforms and, and low-code, no-code applications are going to play a critical role in that future. Yeah, you know, it's a great point, right? The speed and ease of what's happening in low code and no code. That's what's driving people to be able to move quickly enough and get through those iterations. Yeah. Uh, and, and part of digital transformation is making those business model shifts. Um, are you seeing the difference between those who have invested more in digital transformation um, in terms of the recovery and getting back to work versus those who haven't? We are. In general, we just see more agility. And, and that again, that time to value and that speed when you're farther along, you've got the systems in place, you, your, your enterprise thinking, your culture, your mindset has shifted more. And so we certainly see companies that are farther along that journey better able to adapt than companies that were just beginning or for whatever reason may not have been embracing it at all or certainly not embracing it at the enterprise level. And so, and so we see an acceleration on that end too of companies going, all right, I, I've got to grapple with this. And, and, and again, I do think in a crisis, you do drive innovation that you didn't imagine before. And just the mere fact of, all right, I've got to keep my company operating. How do I do that when my entire workforce is remote, you know, gets, gets people on the digital transformation journey pretty fast. That's a great point. Does, great point. So, you know, I mean, uh, you know, all three of us know that, Digital transformation is hard work. It's it's it, it's just hard work, um, and and there isn't really a destination you're driving towards. Uh, you're on a you're on a gritty, uh, uh, bumpy road, and bumpy because you need the right culture, talent, process, technology, all of those. 
and probably in that order, um, you know, every company is a tech company, but technology alone isn't going to help you be successful. You have, as our first guest alluded to, you need to really focus on culture and talent first and foremost. You're the chief communication officer. So we know on top of being hard work, we're dealing with a pandemic, we're dealing with an economic crisis, we're dealing with a race crisis, uh, we're dealing with lack of leadership in many parts of our country and world. So there's this deficit of trust in so many dimensions and now you're tasked to digitally transform your business. How do you, get, get, or let me rephrase the question, give advice to other marketing leads or people that are responsible for choosing remarkable words to inspire uh, us to take on this tough work of transformation. What should marketeers, CMOs, and chief communication, because I think you have the hardest job in a company right now. You have to shape the narrative of your company and get your stakeholders to want to believe that there's light at the end of the tunnel. Give us some advice. How do you do that? <laughs> How do you do that? Well, you know, it, it is a journey. And, you know, my best advice is keep it human. And it's all about people at the end of the day. It is about culture and people. And, sure. you know, in our world, you, you mentioned this, it, it can never be just about the technology. Technology is ultimately an enabler. It's not the end game. It's not the solution. And this is a journey of always getting better and improving. Mm -hmm. And and that's been our focus. You know, our purpose as a company is we make the world of work work better for people. And that mm -hmm. was very intentional to emphasize the people part and technology in the service of people, not technology replacing people or doing something else. And so that's what we try to do in this period. And that's what I would advise anybody. It's got to be you got to keep it human. You got to keep it real. You've got to lead with empathy. You've got to be authentic. You know what Allison said, you've got to, the belonging piece. We're all in this together. And you've got to be willing to have those conversations, whether it's about a business crisis or whether it's about Black Lives Matter. You've got to be able to have the courage to stand up and listen and learn. That's what we've been doing in the past two weeks with current events. You know, we just said we want to hear. We want to listen. And that authenticity is extraordinarily powerful. And, and we always try to start inside out. I'm a huge believer. You got to walk the talk inside your organization before you can do it authentically with your customers or do it in the broader market. And so I think it always starts inside your company and your own culture and how you operate, and how you talk to each other and how you communicate. But just this is not a time for corporate rhetoric. You know, this is a, this is a time for keeping it real, keeping it honest, you know, acknowledging you may not know what you don't know. You may be hearing things for the first time, things you haven't thought about before yeah. and, and, and invite people to it's another version of belonging to me invite people on that journey with you people that may not have been at the table before this is a great time back to what allison was saying this is an extraordinary time to really lean into diversity inclusion and belonging and bring more voices to the table to drive more innovation and more thinking about how do we solve this and how do we get through this together Sage advice. Oh, great Sage points. Advice. I mean, we've been hearing that as well. And as you've probably seen from uh, Liz Miller's blog, I mean, really talking about when to jump in, when not to jump in. Right. Now, one of the things I do want to ask you, because, you know, if you think about your role and, and your career path, you know, as a CMO, you've gone from big brands, big consumer retail brands <laughs> to enterprise. Uh, and, and a lot of folks want to know how to make that transition. It's not an easy transition. They're different terms. Um, and how do you do that? Like going from a, you know, a brand CMO to an enterprise CMO and, and then bringing some of those elements back into the enterprise, which sometimes are missing? Well, for me, it, it goes back to that focus on people. It's always 
always in my career, it's always been about who are we trying to serve? It's uh, who's the audience and, and what are we what are we trying to do with that audience? And whether it's marketing or communications or just leadership in general, you know, you need to have clarity on what am I trying to achieve? Who am I trying to achieve that with? And how do I engage them and invite them on that journey with me and, in a way that that creates actions and behaviors on their part that supports the journey and supports where we're trying to go together? And that's what drives employee engagement, leadership engagement, customer engagement, partner engagement. So I found throughout my career that the principles that I learned and skills that I learned first and foremost in consumer companies are the same skills I apply in enterprise software. And what's different are the dynamics of the business. And for me, as I said earlier, the mindset I bring to the table is B2B is not about the technology. It's still about people. And we're still we're selling to people. People are using our technology. You know, businesses are, are counting on our, on our technology. And so at the end of the day, it's still about what are you doing for people to give them meaningful careers, to help them run successful businesses, to help them do things in a better, more effective way. And so I think I think though, to me, those principles are universal. If you're clear about who you're trying to engage and you're clear about what you want them to do with you to achieve your goals together over time, you win. And, and again, always be authentic. Always keep it real. Absolutely. That's, again, sage advice. Um, as a successful marketeer um, and, and, uh, and steward of the brand and, and advocate of your core beliefs and capabilities, how do you, how do you stay teachable? Um, where do you go to learn about, you know, the MarTech Space is now over 8,000 companies, as an example, or the impact of machine it's learning. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's exploded. Uh, and, and so, you know, where do you, how do you build your investment thesis? In terms I, I follow of, Ray. I follow Ray. <laughs> yeah, me too. Me oh, too. no, no, follow, follow, follow Bala. <laughs> follow Liz Miller. Other other blogs, books. By the way, that's great advice. Yeah, I follow Ray too. You're absolutely right. <laughs> but, but that mindset of, uh, you, you know, you talk about being authentic. Part of being authentic is being humble, having a beginner's mindset, challenging assumptions, starting with your own. So can you give us at least, you know, your, your thinking process when you try to envision the future of marketing for your company the next few years? Um, you know, advice to other CMOs and, and marketing leaders who are watching. You know, there, there's particularly, as you guys know, particularly in our in our world, there's so much information coming at you every day and, and there's so much to learn. It, it is absolutely a never ending challenge. Yeah, I, I guess first and foremost, I'm a big fan of, of growth mindset. If you're familiar with that work and Carol Dweck, uh, and yep, yep. so I, I definitely believe in, in that in that philosophy, that mindset of, of always having a growth mindset. Um, and so I do what everybody does at, at one level of just sources, you know, talking to experts, certainly making sure I've got good partnerships inside my company, listening to our customers. You know, what is the latest book? What is the latest thought leadership piece? But then I also, what's important for me is to get out of my box. And where is other innovation happening? You know, so I, I, I still look in the consumer sector. You know, so I look in all aspects to say, there's a movement happening. Where is change happening? And trying to understand what's the catalyst for that and why is that gaining traction and what's going on there? And so, you know, that could be spending a lot of time on a diverse range of social media channels and what's happening in music, what's happening cross-culturally. And so to me, that diversity of experience and perspective is what's really important because if I've got that, if I see like, what are people 
responding to, and again, what is creating community and what is creating scale and momentum, then I can come back and connect the dots to the agenda in our company, in our industry, and the technology in our industry. But it's, it's, a, it's a never ending process. And, you know, the, the, the big fear in, in any job, and certainly in my world, is to get blindsided, right? Like, where did that brand come from? Where did that happen? It felt like it, it, felt like it came out of nowhere. And so that next trend and trying to understand, you know, rarely is there a true overnight success. You know, when, when something breaks out and seemingly breaks out of nowhere, when you study it, you realize, oh, they've spent three years or five years doing that. And that's what I try to pay attention to. Where are the nascent ideas that seem to be playing into future trends? And so I think it's really important to understand what's ahead of us and, and what's being seeded. Not, not trying to just mimic things that have worked at scale in other, uh, other industries. Never ending process. Never ending process. Yeah, totally. And by the way, follow Ray. You're right. That was great. <laughs> no, 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 no. There's other Number people one. that are more expert than I. So, but hey, Whatever race. No, we are, I've been we are here lovely on a Friday afternoon, Friday morning, depending where you are, with Alan Marks, Chief Marketing and Communications Officer at ServiceNow. You can follow him at ALMRK. More importantly, get some wise advice on what's happening with COVID-19, the future of platforms like the Now platform, and of course, what's going on with digital transformation and the shift of what's been going on with CMOs as they transition to this next phase. So, hey, thanks a lot for being on the show and happy Friday. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You know, we do get the smartest CMOs to come on the show. I mean, I think we've interviewed probably north of 50, 60 CMOs, and it's always a pleasure. Speaking of overnight success, we're actually hoping that our next guest is going to be one of those folks we'll talk about in terms of overnight success. I have to tell you before the intro, Ray and I have been doing this show for four years, and this is our fourth platform. So every year, whether it was Google Hangout or Zoom, we've jumped from one platform to another. We're hoping that the average tenure on the current platform will be more than one year. And so far, i got to tell you, given the fact we're getting over 50,000 views a show since we shifted to StreamYard, it's a great testament that you know this is a really powerful platform. So with that, I just want to set the stage. Our next guest is the founder, CEO of StreamYard, Gage Vandentop, uh, who helped uh, build the tools that we're using every week uh, with Ray and I and Disrupt TV. Gage met his co-founder, Dan Briggs, while living in residence during his first year of university, starting, uh, studying double E. By the way, I'm a double E, so I believe double E's changed the world at University of Victoria in British Columbia. Uh, before he started the StreamYard, the two co-founders were fascinated by live streaming in the gaming industry, but recognized that gamers generally had, you know, expensive, fancy, uh, big investments. And, and they were, you know, uh, they thought that it's, there's a better way to do this. Let's make this much easier for people to stream. And, and that uh, idea led to what we're using today. They wanted the streaming tool that anyone could use, a tool that was fun and instead of stressful, and simple and powerful. So in October of 2018, they launched StreamYard to address uh, that need. Um, you can follow Gage on Twitter at G-E-I-G-E capital V. Welcome, Gage, to Disrupt TV. Thanks so much for, uh, for having me on. I'm really excited to, to be here. And yeah, hopefully uh, hopefully we can break the trend for you. Hopefully we can last uh, maybe a few years. That would be great. <laughs> we used your platform to interview the former prime minister of Australia on Tuesday. And I got to tell you, 
Uh, Malcolm Turnbull, who's the prime minister, and his wife, who's the former mayor of Sydney, both complimented the ease of your platform. So I got to tell you, you've got some of the most powerful men and women in the world who are now using your tools. So congratulations. Yeah, I guess they're happy. <laughs> say congrats. I mean, this is um, it's been an easy platform to use, and and you know, really building that process of of, of really understanding what people need. Um, you know, it started on the gaming side, but what have you started to see? Like, how are people adapting the platform? How are people using it? You know, is this something that? I mean, I mean, did you imagine being at this point like two years ago? Yeah, that's a good question. So things have obviously gotten crazy uh, recently. So. I guess there's sort of pre pre pandemic and post pandemic. So I was surprised even before um, the COVID stuff happened. So even before the COVID stuff happened, um, like Dan, I knew there was a market for it. Like because like you in your in your nice introduction, like you were saying, um, we felt there was there's really great tools out there, but they were all tailored towards people that um, were already into streaming. Like they understood a bit about you know encoding or they had a fancy computer. Um, but there's, there's all these people out there that didn't know anything about that, but still had a great story to share. So we thought there was a relatively large market out for that. And we spent a lot of time uh, looking at the different uh, in, or different markets out there, talking to users and what their pain points uh, were. Uh, but it was not the size that we thought it would be. We didn't realize how many people really did want a really easy solution that they didn't have to think about uh, to be able to, to go live. Um, so we, we were surprised in, in January. And then when, when this hit, it was just absolutely insane like there was there was a two-week period where we little, literally doubled in size so it was and we weren't small at the beginning of the two-week period so it was just like crazy um but yeah like now the stuff i'm seeing it just blows my mind like how how quickly people have been able to shift what they were doing in person uh, into an online setting like they've been it's been amazing seeing how creative people have gotten with the platform like there's all these people um, from broadway that are doing like makeshift broadway shows like live on youtube and there's People in fitness that were previously were doing in-person workout groups that are now uh, doing a few people remote doing the exercises and then streaming that out to people that are like following along and, and doing the exercise. So, yes, it's just it's way, way more than we expected. We have um, we now have over 200,000 people um, do actually doing live streams every single month. So that's like like literally they're hitting go live and, and, and making a broadcast wow. every single month. We have 200,000 uh, people. So, yeah, it's it's way bigger than we anticipated like when our, our goals sort of starting out where maybe we'd get like 50,000 uh, 50,000 broadcasters so we're certainly surprised so you're quadrupled your broadcasters you've doubled an already large team on top of that you have demanding clients like disrupt tv who want to continue to advance the platform to make it easier to use and, and you've certainly done that so but what are some of the there's massive challenges that come from hyper growth we've had other startup founders that uh that that have been on the show a couple of weeks ago we had the founder of square and uh you know jim partnered with jack dorsey to start square and he said to us they didn't know anything about payment uh technology when they started but they didn't disqualify themselves based on experience when they were going towards an trying to solve an unsolved problem and the problem we had with our show for the last four years until eight weeks ago was we didn't have a mechanism to multi-stream across different channels ray and i combined have i don't know six hundred thousand followers on twitter and we were not able to live stream to those six hundred thousand followers until you came along so can you talk about managing growth as a challenge but also the demanding need of your 
clients who are going to continue to ask you to uh, to improve? Yeah, absolutely. So I think uh, I think the approach Dan and I have taken to it is probably significantly different than most people. So we're still a very small team. Like our total team is is eight people. So we've always had the philosophy. It's very it's a very high like risky scenario every time you add a person to your team because it has a really dramatic effect on the culture, especially when you're small. So it's. Uh, We've just, I mean, it's, it's, we work really hard. We spend a lot of time uh, to try to own every single process because I want to make sure I'm in, I, we, we want to make sure we're experts at something and really understand something before we sort of pass that off to, to someone else. We think that's uh, really important. But um, as far as managing hyper growth, I mean, you sort of just have to, I don't know that there's anything that can prepare you for it. I don't know that you yeah. can, you know, read this manual like, oh, this is how you deal with a hundred thousand new people in a matter of a month. You kind of just have like things will break and you fix it as fast as you possibly can. And sure. I think in some ways it was almost an advantage being small just because both of us has a, have a very detailed understanding of our entire system, right? So we were able to quickly, since we know how all the different parts work and we're, it's not like, oh, this team needs to coordinate with this team. Uh, right. We were able to, you know, rapidly scale up our, our infrastructure with shockingly few, uh, few hiccups. So um, yeah, I don't know that anything can prepare you for it. You just sort of have to, you know, just deal with it. <laughs> no, no to the ground, work hard and be responsive. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, I totally get that coming from, uh, you know, a startup environment early in my career. So absolutely makes sense. Go ahead, Ray. Yeah, no, I was going to say the same thing. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, especially in the startup environments, you know, every day is different, right? You know, you never know what to expect. And given that, that massive growth you have on, on the back end, um, where do you see the market in the future? Like, as, is this a market that, you know, like everybody's going to be able to do live streaming on their own? Is it a market where everyone becomes individual broadcasters? There's a term, we have a guy coming on, uh, you know, John Hagel, he's coined the term 20 some years ago that everyone becomes an infomediary, right? And, and we're all broadcasting on our own, or we're all personal brands, they interact with each other. Uh, like, what, what's your vision of that future? Yeah, that definitely seems to be the direction that that things are going. Like, I'm shocked how how willing people um, are to start telling their story and, and going live that you wouldn't necessarily um, expect. Like someone who's maybe um, not not to say anything mean about like like it just I wouldn't expect like you know a plumber or uh, or a blacksmith to be going live, but they are. There's these people are going live to talk about their um, their, their trade and educate educate people about it. So I do think that's where it's going. I think. We'll see a uh, just because e-commerce is growing so much. I think we'll see a, a big shift of people uh, going like like small businesses and, and individual entre entrepreneurs going on uh, live to to tell their stories and and grow their brand um, that way. And it definitely feels like it'll be no one really knows. It'll be it'll be interesting to see how long lasting the effects of this stuff really is. Like, has the world really fundamentally changed? Like, how how much will it shift back to the office versus being uh, more of this remote situation? So I think. Time will tell. I don't know for sure, but it it definitely feels like there's like almost everyone out there, or a huge percentage of people out there, uh, will be um, either a blogger or a live streamer or a <laughs> podcaster and and creating content. Well, it's a great point you bring up e-commerce, Ray. I, I think it took ten years for percentage of digital commerce as a percentage of total commerce to go from eight to sixteen percent. Ten years. And it's likely we'll go 16% is what 2019 ended in the US anyway. It's likely we might hit 30% when it's all said and done. So we've had a doubling effect of commerce as a percentage of total digital commerce, as a percentage of total 
in, in five months, a 10 year fast forward in, in, in five months. So this, this coupling of digital commerce with potential influencers speaking to your product or your brand streaming and being an advocate as a part of a digital commerce strategy is, is an interesting one. Uh, um, so so I, I, I think that that's a, that, that's a trend I would tend to agree with. Um, and I just heard it, you know, first time here with, with you talking about it. My question to you, as you're hiring talent into your company, what do you look for? As a CEO, founder, you know, you're, you're a small team, so everyone has to have some meaningful impact to your company. How do you gauge whether this is the right person? And, you know, if you saw the first segment, obviously diversity inclusion is, is an asset. It can help you become a better company. Uh, so what do you specifically look for to, as you think about growing StreamYard in the upcoming months and upcoming years? Yeah, it's definitely it's definitely something I'm learning, and it's something I'm very very new at, and that Dan and I are are talking about and dealing with on a uh, on a daily daily basis. So I'm just trying to educate myself as as best I can, just because we put it off for for so long. We've tried to stay small for so long, but um, the process we have used for the people we have hired is to just take take it very very slow and make sure that it is the right person, just not, not like a one interview type of thing. Like, oh, this feels like a good fit. Let's bring them on board, but really taking the time to make sure that their ideals and their values align with our own and that they have sort of the um, the sort of attitude that it takes to be on a team like ours that is so small where it's like, yeah, you're going to be having to deal with random stuff that's not necessarily in your job description sometimes. It's the most important yeah. job of a CEO, in my opinion, is the talent you bring into your company for what it's worth in the 25 years of work experience. I, so I, I'm glad to hear that it's methodical and you're, and you're purposefully doing your, your recruiting because it is the most important. Uh, you're only as good as the company you keep. So, so good. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. It sounds like a lot of interesting growth. Now, hey, the startup world, I mean, you've, I mean, you're not necessarily jumped into the startup world. Um, I mean, you know, it doesn't sound like you have, you went out to raise money with investors. It doesn't sound like you did like the, those kind of things. I mean, this is completely organic from the ground up. Um, do you connect with other people in the startup community? Like, how's that been? Like, whether it's in Portland or whether in Victoria or in, or in BC, so. Yeah, so Dan and I are definitely we're fully bootstrapped. So yeah, we never raised money. We never really went through the pitch the pitch decks to to VCs or anything like that. So um, we are sort of a bit uh, a bit outside that that space. But yeah, we have we, we do have several friends in Victoria that also uh, run their own uh, bootstrapped startups, and that's a great resource to be able to bounce uh, ideas off of each other. But um, as far as the scene itself, I know that it's I, I know that there is a thriving scene in Victoria, and especially uh, Vancouver. It's just we're much more focused on our customer. Like that's what, that's like 90, 90% of my time is just talking to our users and watching how they're using uh, the product to decide um, what, what we should add while filtering it through our, our values of what the product uh, should be. So I don't, I don't spend too much time actually engaging with that, that community, but it is the times that I do and the times that I do connect with other founders, it's certainly useful. Makes it that's, makes that's it interesting. Awesome. Hey, any that's sneak another peeks good into, answer. <laughs> any sneak peeks into the product? Like, what's next? Anything uh, we should we should be expecting on the platform that you can tell us? So, uh, yeah, I can I can allude to uh, some, some certain things. Um, so, we we listen closely to to feedback from people. So, the, some of the most popular requests are uh, more guests. So, that's definitely in our plans is the ability to have more people on on screen at once. Uh, more destinations, people want to go to uh, more places. Uh, at a time. So that will most likely be raised to something like 10 places 
in the in the near future. And then oh, wow. there's also some other exciting stuff that I'll I'll I'll, I'll leave to I'll I'll keep it a surprise that, uh, that's coming soon. <laughs> Sure. Very, very cool. We, sure. we get a lot of questions about how you can move guests into different boxes as well. And then, uh, but I, I want to know the technical reasons of why it's like only six guests up at once. Is that a bandwidth constraint, a compression issue, uh, something deeper in the, in, in the codec? Sure. There's a few different uh, reasons for that. Um, one of the, one of them is just like the amount of people we felt when we were designing the product, like how many people should be on screen uh, at once. Um, like we always thought, like, like when we do this, right? Like, how do <laughs> yeah, like there's only right? so much, you only have so much uh, your left, right? right. I mean, so yeah, only so much part of that, yeah. to, uh, <laughs> so. Uh, to work with. Um, another one is to make sure that uh, just because we always want the experience to be really good for everyone, no matter what kind of environment they're in, which can be challenging. Cause like, like you said earlier, sometimes you have really bad uh, internet. So, um, each additional guest is going to make it a bit harder on um, on everyone else in the in the studio as far as pulling that uh, that data. Um, there are there are clever things you can do to sort of uh, reduce that, which we're which we're currently uh, working on and will implement when we increase it uh, to ten. But um, the main yeah the, the biggest one is just like the amount of room on the screen, and then there are also yeah. uh, different costs associated with with having more more people that have to be accounted for. Very cool. Wow, Very cool. great stuff. Well, you're speaking it's, it's to a happy amazing. customer right now. So keep up the good work. Uh, we want to. We believe we're the. We believe we're the most watched enterprise technology podcast in the world. So we're, uh, we're. We thank you for helping us scale our voice. Of course, I'm happy to do it. I'm flat. I, I, I'm so excited that you guys are, are using the platform, and it's a, it's a pleasure to be here and to see you using uh, the product for your show. Terrific. Wow, we Terrific. are we are massively we are massively honored that you can make it. We know how busy you are. We're here with Gage Vanistop, co-founder at Streamyard. You can follow him at Twitter at Gage G E I G E V, and if you can get a hold of him, track him down uh, because you're going to want this app and you're going to want to do this as you're doing your live stream podcast. And special shout outs to uh, Paul Greenberg and Brent Leary who put this onto this, and Holger Mueller. These were early adopters uh, on our teams that have been using us. That definitely recommended. Thanks for being on the show. Come by anytime. So thanks, Gage. Good meeting you. Keep up the good work. Thank you. Yeah, that's, you know, it's, uh, it's inspiring to see uh, uh, young electrical engineers changing the world. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to all the double E's. Uh, and uh, yeah, so what a, what a great, what a great uh, episode 195. Next week, we have uh, episode 196. And, you know, if it wasn't for our first guest next week, uh, Gage couldn't build his solution because we have the inventor of the internet <laughs> and uh, inventor of TCP IP protocol. We had Vinton Cerf, uh, Vice President Chief Internet Evangelist at Google, who as many of you is considered the godfather of the internet uh, or one of the fathers of the internet, who's gonna be on our show. We have Melissa Flagg, Senior Fellow at the Center for Security and Emerging Technologies. And we have Dr. David Bray, Director of Geotech Center and Geotech Commission at the Atlantic Council, who will be on a three-person uh, uh, panel uh, with us next week. We have also a special episode, not a Friday show, scheduled for July 7th at 8 a.m. Uh, Pacific time, noon um, Eastern time. And uh, we are featuring John Hagel, who uh, you know leads center, uh, uh, Centers at the Edge at Deloitte. He's a management consultant, speaker, author, one of the pioneers uh, talking about innovation and future of business and he will be on a special show on July 7th. Uh, Ray, closing uh, remarks about this episode, Tuesday's episode with the former Prime Minister of Australia and any of the future guests that we have. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> no, I, I think it's just amazing. I mean, the, 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 the types of, uh, the types of conversations we've had, the, uh, the interchange that's going on, right? I mean, today we were able to talk from anything from DNI to what's happening with COVID-19 to live stream apps. I mean, it doesn't get more relevant than this. And then I think it's, it's just awesome to be able to be able to bring people together and, uh, and, and yeah, it, it's amazing. Uh, and then of course, right. I mean, getting the uh, prime minister and the Lord mayor of Sydney, prime minister of Australia and Lord mayor of Sydney was fun. Uh, really having a conversation and, uh, you know, a testament to the platform, right? I mean, I was broadcasting from the beach on Lake Tahoe. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I couldn't right, find right. an internet connection that worked. I actually had to go out somewhere and, literally, and the upload, global the upload was one, yeah. it was one megabyte <laughs> on the upload. Like that was it, right? It wasn't like 50, it wasn't whatever. I was like this, wow. I mean, I don't know how they pulled it off. So it was pretty wild, but, uh, it's, it has been crazy and I can't believe we're in the middle of June already. And, uh, it, it's wild. What about you, Vala? What's going on? What, what are you excited about? And I'm what excited. have we done? I'm excited about 10 guests away from 600 interviews uh, that you and I have done. Uh, you know, it's it's not uh, easy to have uh, 45, 46 shows a year and um, and prepare to have interesting conversations with some of the best and brightest people around the world. So it's a privilege for you and I. I know that we uh, we look forward to Fridays every week, and we're yeah, ten guests away from 600. So I'm I'm uh, and I know it's just a number and a milestone, but uh, you know, it's just a reminder to me we're, that we're uh, four shows away from officially <laughs> 200, even though we've done 10 special editions. Right, right, right. right, from, right. From, from, from Davos to, I don't know, like sales, was it? Confer conference we're in New yeah, York. Yeah, I, yeah, like, so it's, so we're getting there. We're actually undercounting the number of shows, but in any event, we've had 195 Friday shows uh, and, and numerous, probably over a dozen non-Friday shows. But anyway, it's just, I'm just happy that... Uh, we can we can still do this and uh, and uh, we've got our guest booked all the way until September. So, but we are always looking for recommendations. And if we have to spin a special show because there's a special person that we need to speak to, let us know. Our producer is always open to hearing from you at Disrupt TV Show. Thanks. And thanks to our awesome producer Aubrey. So, hey, Absolutely. have a great Friday, everyone. Happy Friday. <laughs>